hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. This is a podcast for aspiring writers or anyone who'd like to learn more about what happens behind the scenes in the publishing industry. Today's guest is the author of the novels Costa Ligre, a Goop book club pick, and one of Glamour Magazine's top books of the decade. I am having so much fun here without you and touch a New York Times editor's choice and NPR best book of the year selection and the handbook before and after the book deal, a writer's guide to finishing, publishing, promoting and surviving your first book out from Catapult. She's the founder of the collaborative retreat program, The Cabins, and also has a writing advice newsletter, Get Published, Stay Published. Here to tell us about the 10 things she wishes she knew before she published her first book is the brilliant Courtney Mom. Hi, Courtney. Thanks for joining me. It is an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to reconnect in this manner. First things first, where can listeners sign up for your newsletter? They can go to my website, CourtneyMom.com, and that's mom is spelled M-A-U-M. And there's a little bar at the top that says subscribe to my newsletter and click, you're done. It's free. And I have productivity tips, writing tips, creativity during pandemic tips, sanity tips. 
<laughs> I'm a subscriber and I absolutely love it. You also have a service that you offer writers called the Query Doula. I'm a trained copywriter. I've worked as a copywriter for, I guess, over 20 years now, actually. I've worked in marketing and branding as other things as well. And I, I find, almost without exception, most creative people, not just writers, artists, dancers, you know, what have you, have a really, really difficult time writing about their own work in a kind of sales mini or, you know, PR way. And that becomes really evident and also kind of unfortunate with the query letter, right? The all important query letter when a, an emerging writer is trying to uh, secure an agent, you need to have a great query letter. You could have an incredible manuscript that you're desperately hoping someone will let you attach to an email. But if your query letter stinks or is all over the place or kind of self-effacing, no one's going to ask to read your manuscript. So I work with writers on the packet that an agent would see, first three chapters, the query letter, and then we talk a lot on the phone. I just try to get to know them because something I find is that writers often don't understand what is the most interesting and saleable Thing about not just their work that they're trying to get represented, but themselves. Really frequently when I'm talking with people, they've never answered the question in a query letter, you know, why could only you have written this book? Because they think, oh, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to write about someone in the Navy, but then you dig and it turns out that their grandfather was in the, you know, and they haven't included that. And those are the little pieces that are so helpful to an agent because then they can think, oh, I see the off the book pieces, the the nonfiction pieces that you're encouraged to write as an author that help you promote your book, they can start piecing everything together and see how they can launch you in the marketplace. And that was one of the things I struggled with most when I set out to find an agent. I had no problems writing a 400 page manuscript, <laughs> but a one page email to an agent, I just found it impossible. And here's the thing, there are different cultures in the world. And I know that Americans are taught from young to kind of sell themselves yeah. to do the elevator pitch. But as South Africans, we were always taught to be self-effacing. We didn't blow our own trumpets. And if we told people how fabulous we were, that was kind of frowned upon. And then suddenly I was thrust into this role where I had to grab someone's attention and tell them why my book was so wonderful, why I was so wonderful. <laughs> so I wish I'd known about you then, Courtney. And something else in one of the other episodes Episodes, talking with an editor is we spoke about the origin story and how important somebody's origin story is in terms of helping sales and marketing, etc. And that's just what you were referring to now. So if somebody would like to hire you for those services, they just go to your website and they'll find your email address or how's it best to query you? Yeah, that information is on my website. There's a little section called uh, writing services. And otherwise, you can email me at thequerydoula at gmail.com. Tell us a bit more about the handbook before and after the book deal. I just think it's an amazing resource for writers. I like the word handbook because it really is something I was hoping that people would hold in their hands, hold close to their desk where they're working on whatever it is they're working on. I wanted to write a book not just for people who want to you know, see their name in lights or have, have a book on a bookshelf, but also the people who had a book come out and are just feeling completely destabilized and disorientated between what they thought the experience would be and then what it actually became. I find, again, in, in America especially, this focus on the MFA has left us oversaturated with resources that teach us how to write better and 
tell us if you take enough classes, invest enough in summer writer workshops, whatever, hire an outside editor, you'll get a book deal. But then there's no resources. There's nothing that tells us how to behave, what to expect, what not to expect when we actually do get that book deal, when the dream is realized. So I wanted to write the book that quite literally will guide you. I mean, I find it pretty darn exhaustive, the book. Like I really tried to go through every single point in this choose your own adventure of, of publishing a book from everything that can happen. You know, you're with a micro press all the way up to you do get the million dollar book deal. You get the movie deal, all the things that can happen along the way, how to protect yourself, how to educate yourself. And of course we have interviews with almost 200 publishing professionals. It's not like a memoir (laughs) or something. I bring in the, you know, the big guns, not just editors and agents and other writers, but foreign scouts, film scouts, voiceover narrators, translators, copy editors, the editorial assistants who have been dying to tell writers what makes them impossible to work with. You know, we hear from a lot of different people. Let's dive into the shit you wish you knew before you started writing. Number one is, in fact, read your contracts, whether it's a publishing contract for a short story or you've done it, you're getting your first book deal. I know when I got my first contract, I mean, that thing was so darn long. It's legalese. I am not a lawyer, so I don't really understand legalese. And, you know, I have a great agent. So I just thought, well, she's read it. Her assistant's read it. So I'm sure it's fine. And and it was fine. Simply as I've like moved along in my career and start to understand what matters to me, that now I have a more vested interest in reading my contracts. So for example, now that I have narrated one of my own books, having the ability to audition to narrate my own books is something that matters to me. Controlling audio rights matters to me because that could be quite lucrative. And I do have a contract in my past where I just didn't even notice we'd given all the audio rights to the publisher. So when it sold and it sold pretty well, none of that money went to me. What else? You know, world rights, many people just sort of They go for world rights and don't really take time to look into whether or not their publisher has a good track record of, of selling foreign rights. Ask your agent, can we block off a 45-minute call? Can you actually walk me through what these things mean? Something else I've learned since I've been doing this is that you can ask for some bonus language. You know, you can ask for bonus language if your book makes one of the top bestseller lists. You can ask for bonus. That means like extra cash. You you win the National Book Award. You get an extra, you know, X amount of dollars. You hit the New York Times bestseller list, extra amount. You sell over... 10,000 copies in the first year, you get some extra money. So that is really great. Again, hopefully you have an agent who takes care of these things for you and suggests these things for you, but agents are super busy, things get overlooked. So you do want to educate yourself and know, especially for people who are with smaller presses or indie presses, and you have a very small book deal, that bonus language can really help you. I think that can be especially true in memoirs sometimes if you've got a small book deal, but it seems like maybe what you're writing about could fit into a trend or something like that. Your point two is interesting one. Buy stamps. (laughs) Buy stamps. Okay, so in America, again, I'm sorry to keep coming back to my uh, dumpster fire of a country, but uh, buying stamps is very important right now because the orange person in office wants to shut down the post office. But the reason I have buy stamps has to do actually with 
gratitude. So this was a little bit of a cheating thing on my end because my agent told me before I started my whole publishing adventure, I hope you have a lot of thank you notes because I want you writing thank you notes to every single person who helps you. So luckily that was said to me, but I find it helps to be prepared to thank people from the beginning. Otherwise, sometimes you can get so overwhelmed with what's happening, we just forget to thank people. If an author is kind enough to join you in conversation on Zoom, or things get a little more stabilized and a bookstore hosts you in their store, these are people taking time at send them a, a postcard, send them uh, an actual thank you note. So if you can get a nice amount of stationery that maybe even plays into your book. For example, uh, there's a wonderful author, Marcy Dermansky, her book, kind of a poodle that had leading role in the book. And she actually made her own stationery with all different poodles, little things like that. And then you've got your stack, buy a bunch of stamps in the olden days before the pandemic. You know, some of us would actually do book tours. I would always travel with stamps because you certainly are not, you don't even have time to poop. So you definitely don't have time to go to the post office. And yeah, maybe you're even using the, the hotel postcard that they give you, whatever it is, say thank you, be prepared, be ready to say thank you. In terms of like actual gifts for editors, you have to feel that out, see what your budget is. If the people on your team are drinkers, send them wine, your, your publicist is working really hard for you. The editorial assistant works so hard and no, no one ever thanks them. So the buying stamps thing is just, it's about Thank yous, saying thank you. And I only noticed this during COVID is that people who've been published for ages didn't have book plates, but I suppose they didn't need them until COVID because they would just go into a store and sign their books. And suddenly during COVID, they couldn't do that. And readers were asking them to send autographs. What is your third point? Okay, so the third point, and this is this is complicated, but there's a whole section on financial planning in before and after the book deal. But my third thing I wish someone had told me much earlier than someone did tell me is to start an S-Corp. And I'm going to put an ellipsis and a maybe on that. This is about financial planning. So authors, we are self-employed, you know, and our agents take a percentage off of what we make. Taxes come off of what we make. And most of us tend to not make very much. So, and, and so many of us are, we get these windfalls. Sometimes they can be huge, right? For certain people, sometimes they're modest, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking... I'm just talking about the writing and publishing work. Of course, many people have jobs on the side and that's separate, but the making money off of your writing, you're not getting a certain salary every month. You know, you're going with nothing for two years and then all of a sudden you get $60,000 and then you go for nothing and then, whoa, out of nowhere, someone wants to turn your thing into a movie and maybe all of a sudden you have a million dollars. So you cannot function very well in most countries really with these fluctuating incomes. So setting up for some people, maybe it's an LLC. Um, for me, it eventually became an S corp was a way to protect myself from what was happening with my first two books, where I would get a nice installment of money that I thought I could live on and didn't realize at the end of the year that the IRS was going to be taking 40% because the, the hacks rate for self-employed people was so, so high. And it wasn't until, you know, we finally got an accountant because of course I was trying to save money and didn't have an accountant for a while. And he said, oh my God, you, you should have had an escort for years now. It was an absolute nightmare to form. My husband took care of it. I mean, it was so hard. It was so much work, but we saved so much 
money, um, money that really mattered. But I know how I made my money. And it was half hour by half hour by word by word, bird by bird, so hard. And then to have 40% taken away, I just hate it. Your fourth point is test your lighting. Yeah, test your lighting. <laughs> So now so many so many of us authors and interviewers were going on Zoom, we're going on Squadcast, we're going on all these different things. And not all of us are prepared for what we look like on screen and what our lighting is, what our best angles are. So for people who have Macs, photo booth is usually something that, that's at the bottom of your screen. And you can just turn photo booth on before you actually, let's just say Zoom, and you can see yourself. So you can kind of figure out how you're going to appear. And I'm not talking about attractiveness. This whether people can see your face. It's sort of amazing, having done many of these calls, how many people are just like weird faces coming out of the dark or, or they're backlit in a, or they're in front of a window. I think it's better for people, usually if you elevate your computer, I have like these three books that are really big and I just put it on top of three books. You, you need to test these things out a little bit if you want to give kind of a good show. And backgrounds. I would say don't just test your lighting. Look what's in your background. I've seen some quite dodgy things in uh, <laughs> some, of the, some of the interviews and calls that I've done. So that too. Okay, so point five, there are other books than yours. Yes, this I definitely needed to be told because my first book, I got really lucky and I had just an amazing editor at a really good house and they made it one of their lead titles, which means that it's a book that the publishing house has decided to put, you know, quite a bit of resources and energy behind. And by resources, I mean money. <laughs> and we got just amazing press. And again, I was coming out of nowhere. I didn't have tons of exciting bylines. I wasn't these literary ingenues or anything. So this was the surprise. So I felt very special and I felt very excited. And when we started getting kind of the big things that all summer books want, you know, in the, the summer roundups in like Oprah and told that we were going to have a New York Times, all these things. Well, then I started getting very much, you know, when we didn't get something, I started just getting very like a jerk even when you have something amazing, an amazing book, you basically get two weeks after your pub date where people, are, maybe there's a month or two before and then two to three weeks after people really, maybe it seems like they're just talking about it nonstop, but then everyone moves on because there's always some other book. And I remember, I mean, I talk about this in before and after the book deal, but I remember when my editor, Sally, she had a little thumbnail at the bottom of her emails that had the, the cover of my first book. I'm having so much fun here without you. But, you know, exactly two weeks after my book came out, I got an email from her. And all of a sudden I was like, that's not my book. That's someone else's book. You know what the hell? Is Again, I mean, it seems so silly, but you really, you do get a little crazy when you have a book coming out. Um, and you go back and forth from, you know, my book is the only one that matters to my book is garbage. It's an imposter out there. I can't believe they've been published. You know, go back and forth. So, yeah, I wish someone had sat me down and said, listen, this is the way it's going to work. You're going to have 10 days. Truly, it is going to be all about you and your launch. And then you need to work on your next book because no one cares about your other book anymore. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. It's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. So your point six, I found super interesting because oh. this is not something I was expecting uh, in this author podcast. Could you tell us what that is? Absolutely. Number six is join a sports league. <laughs> Um, so I'm really not an athletic person 
And I suppose the way I've always kept in shape as a writer is just typing, 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 and then going for the occasional very short, like maybe a mile run. But I have found that joining a sports team, or it could be a dance class, anything that is physical and outside of the house, again, um, outside of the house, you're accountable, you've prepaid for a bunch of karate lessons, whatever the heck it is, you need to show up. What get Whatever gets you out of the house with other people to move your body is so necessary, especially for writers who were so sedentary. What we do is, is actually not very healthy for our bodies at all. Having fun with your the, the physical casing of your body, especially if you can join some sort of sports team and get out there and be silly and get out of your head and have teammates and just do something where you're not talking about writing and you're not with writers. I mean, I encourage people to not join these sports teams or whatever with writer people, but to just go far, far out of, of the people that they're normally spending time with. I think, I think that can be a very healthy activity. It's something for me that has brought me a tremendous amount of pleasure. Your point seven is you will not always make more than your first advance. Yeah, it's funny. I had a back and forth with my agent about this when I was writing before and after the book deal because I said, you know, I said I want to include something about just spelling out to people that let's say you get $75,000 for your first book. Most writers assume that they will only go up from there, right? And I said that to her and she's like, well, of course not. Of course, why would you assume such a thing? And I started laughing and I said, oh my God, but every, all writers assume that. And here's why it's not true. And let's, let's actually raise the amount of money because I find this is more true with some of the the bigger advances, right? Let's say that you got $300,000 for your hot, hot debut that's, you know, has all everything that people want to read in a, I don't know, a fun summer book or whatever. And uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's a pandemic, maybe it's a fascist president taking over the country, maybe it's global, all these wonderful things have, for whatever reason, your book underperforms. Surprise, you might go back to your editor with what you hope to be your next project. And they say, okay, well, apparently we overshot and um, we're going to give you 60,000. Or they might say, we're actually not interested in you anymore at all. That's how poorly your book performed. (laughs) So again, this goes back to one of my points about the financial planning and establishing some sort of extra level of protection against the self-employment taxes you're, there's going to be so many financial ups and downs that you kind of have to be ready, especially if you're getting a larger advance to understand that the next advance might be less, you know, it, that unfortunately we are in a, um, an industry where we are paid in regards to how past books have performed. And that stinks, to be honest. It, it, it's a shame. When you have a debut, it's different because they, you're untested. So that can be good news, you know, if you if you had a small advance. But uh, yes, your your first advance, your second advance might not be more than your first advance. Your eighth point is uh, <laughs> pertains to the thing that I hate the most. Well, the second thing that I hate the most, but sitting for an author photograph. Oh my god! So so give us your advice on that. Okay, so my my advice here was especially for for Caucasian women, not to use self-tanner in your author photo, which is something that I did. I just, I don't know. I'm a writer. I don't like have a healthy tan or anything. I'm inside my house typing, especially during a pandemic. So I'd put on the self-tanner 
And it just, oh my God, in the photos, it like accentuated all of my wrinkles and fine lines. It made me look older. It made me look really weird. Plus we'd done these sort of arty photos in the dark that none of the outlets picked up anyway, because they were so, so dark. <laughs> Unfortunately, most outlets want your just an actual headshot, you know, where you don't have too complicated of a, a racy of a background. You're not showing cleavage. If, you know, it's just sort of PG, something that people can put on a literary festival flyer, as well as like the New York Times could use it, whatever. And same thing, I'm not someone who normally puts on self-tanner. So why I did it that day for my author voter, I have no idea, but it was not a wise decision. In terms of not looking like yourself. So I'm someone I never wear makeup. If I wear makeup, it's, it's lipstick. And I went and had my hair and makeup done for my author photo. And then the worst part is people come to your book events and they look at you and they look at the author photo and they look at you and they're like, oh, you look nothing like your lovely author photo. So, oh, oh no. I mean, that's something else that people need to be sat down and told us that People who come to your events have absolutely no manners. It's like they've come out of a cave where they have never been socialized and they are going to say things to you. My God, especially if you are a person of color. I mean, you will not believe what comes out of these people's mouth as women as well. I mean, unbelievable. They just comment directly on what you look like, what you're wearing, what you should have worn. So that's a joy. Get ready. <laughs> okay. So number nine made me laugh. Tell us number nine. Number nine is find a therapist who isn't your agent. Good agents tend to be quite available to the, to their clients who are about to have a book come out. And that can get us into situations, I think, where we start to over rely on them. And it can be hard once the book has come out and they need to move on and we need to move on because we're supposed to write another book, there can be kind of a, a longing or a lack or it feels like we've been broken up with. And I just, I just think it's important to have some boundaries. And I say this more for the agent really than, than for the writer. I think we ask an awful lot of agents sometimes um, and the good agents deliver, you know, they're really there for us. But I think that it's healthy to have someone that we can talk to about our writing successes and disappointments who is not our agent, that we're not putting all of our emotional eggs in one basket because there could come a time where you are upset with your agent, frustrated, pissed off, feeling like you're not getting enough tension, or maybe they just messed up a deal for you. I don't know what, you know, many, many different things could happen. And that's going to feel so much worse if it's almost like a loaded or supercharged relationship. So I found that actually finding a therapist for me, you know, where I can talk and, and, and also you need to be able to talk to someone in a way that's not going to have any consequences. So something that I found surprising and a bummer, so I became published, was that I couldn't talk to my writer friends in the same way. And they couldn't talk to me in the same way because everything became very loaded, like a minefield. So before we were published, we might've said, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so got a movie deal for that book. That was just not even a really good book. And then the next thing you know, your friend gets a movie deal you get something that they wanted. And so all of a sudden there's jealousy and you can't speak freely. So either identify someone outside of the industry that you can just, I call it your bitch bucket that you can just complain to, or if you can afford it, get a therapist that you know for sure this person's not going to go on Twitter or whisper behind your back at AWP about the thing you said about the, the yeah, I think, I think it's important to separate church and state. Point 10 
I think it's it's extremely positive, and I like that we're ending on <laughs> a positive note. So your book doesn't have only one chance to make it. So I think this is such an important lesson because we really are in a culture where the debut is so important. There's such a huge amount of weight and attention and you know real estate in magazines and on the radio stations or interviews, what have you about the debut, the debut, especially a young person's debut, especially a young woman's debut. And while I understand the excitement, it is exciting to see someone debut. This is pretty unnecessary, all this outward facing energy on debuts, because thank goodness we are in an industry that privileges aging and longevity because the more you live, the more experience, the more you can write about. And that is a really beautiful thing. It is a huge immense and rare privilege. You know, if you think about basketball players or track runners or, you know, they really have such a finite amount of time to perform and then and then their body just can't work in the same way. Whereas as long as we can stay sort of healthy, fed and sane, in theory, we can write well, well, well into our 60s, 70s, maybe even our 80s. And we can read and we can participate in conversations and we can be part of our community and we can work. And so whatever happens with your first book, and it's funny because even for the people who have levels of success that anyone would think, oh my God, they've made it. They Even they think like, oh my God, I didn't get the thing I want, right? So whatever happens to your first book, if it didn't meet readers in the way that you had hoped or you know, there was a pandemic and your book couldn't even be in bookstores or whatnot, don't give up on the idea that your book can find its way to the right readers. Because there's so many examples, current examples of books that were third or fourth publications that introduced the world, not just one group of people, but the entire world to an author's work. So an example, you know, would be Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See. That was his fourth book, not his first. Emma Straub, I believe it was her third book that took off. Even, even you know, the crawdad, when the crawdads sing or where they're singing, <laughs> that woman is in her, what, 60s or 70s? When 70s, she had her first yeah. book. And <laughs> I have to admit, I haven't read it, but I have to imagine that the level of success that book had comes from her writing about stuff that she knows about, you know, and has lived and is writing from a deep place of knowledge. Again, I don't. I'm not saying this from a deep place of knowledge because I haven't read it. So don't give up. And and to me, not giving up does not look like dedicating your entire life to trying to salvage sales for your first book. You know, I do think that there's a time when you should move on and put most of your energy into writing a new book. I would say maybe it's 80-20, like three, four months after your book is out, start moving 80% of your energy to your new project. And then 20%, you know, from time to time, check in. Is there a book club that I can kind of call into? Something that I do that I think is is quite nice actually is I'll keep um, copies of my books in the <laughs> with my spare tire, like in my car in a Ziploc, because otherwise they get all the weird marks on them. And then, because sometimes you meet people again in a world where we're a little bit more social and free than we are right now, you might go to a party and meet someone who could do something for your book. Maybe they're attached to a festival, they have a beautiful gift shop in a museum, or you know, whatever it is. 
And just talking to them and hoping that they're going to go home and buy your book, forget about it. No, it's not happening. Uh uh-uh. You need to give it to them right then. So having a couple of extra books on hand is, is a nice way, I think, to keep your book out there. But yeah, I, otherwise move on, work on your next, pro- next project and just have faith and kind of celebrate the fact that I think most writers' greatest hope should be that they're first book does just well enough that they can publish a second and their second book does just well enough that they can publish a third. And that's a goal that I think most of us can work toward regardless of where we're coming from. It's a long game. And I do think that that's something that we should celebrate more. Courtney, since I was lucky enough to go on pre-publication tour with you before my debut novel came out, you have been one of my favorite people, one of my favorite authors. So having this excuse to chat with you has just been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. Today's guest is an editor who joined Putnam in 2014. She has edited New York Times bestsellers The Silent Wife by A.S.A. Harrison, the House at Tyneford by Natasha Solomons, The Light We Lost by Jill Santopolo, and Where the Cordads Sing by Delia Owens, among others. She is the first editor to have two books selected by the Reese Witherspoon Hello Sunshine Book Club. Keeping this in mind and the phenomenal success her authors have had, I've come to think of her as the bestseller whisperer. It's my enormous pleasure to welcome Tara Singh Carlson. Hi, Tara. Thanks so much for taking the time out to be with us today. Thank you. Hi, Bianca. I have to start off by saying I don't know how much I've earned the bestseller whisperer title, but I will wear it proudly during this podcast. Get a crown made and and a badge. and, and <laughs> Right. <laughs> In fact, get a sash. If I was you, I'd make everyone call me that. Seriously. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.